Welcome to California Now, a podcast produced by Visit California. I'm your host, Satirius Johnson. Today we'll talk to New York Times travel writer Stephanie Rosenblum, who's written a fascinating book about the growing interest in solo travel. It's not just folks who are single or people who don't have children, because, you know, a lot of times now, you know, even in relationships, you can't always sync up your vacation. After that, we'll talk to Eater LA senior editor Farley Elliott, a man who has an encyclopedic knowledge of the food trucks and street food scene in Los Angeles. You've got people that are doing ad hoc cooking out of you know, shopping carts, making things at home, bringing them down, whether it's a big sope style, you know, tortillas, tacos, we've got grilled meats. It's all just a big flavor bonanza. Plus, we'll talk with Tom Curry, co-founder of the Temecula Olive Oil Company, who will help you build an itinerary for an olive oil-themed road trip. It's all coming up on California Now. You're listening to California Now, a podcast produced by Visit California. My next guest, Stephanie Rosenblum, is a travel writer for The New York Times and the author of a fascinating new book, Alone Time, Four Seasons, Four Cities, and the Pleasures of Solitude. The tome explores multiple facets of solo travel, a growing trend that can seem daunting at first, but pays rich dividends to those willing to give it a try. Welcome to the California Now podcast, Stephanie. It's wonderful to be here. Let's talk about your new book, Alone Time. I love what you have to say about solo travel and uh, think it provides a great mix of inspiration and information. What prompted you to write the book? It really began when I was taking uh, several, many years ago now, uh, when I was taking business trips for work. And I realized that there were some perks to traveling on my own that you know it wasn't all it didn't didn't always feel like work uh, there were, were some really wonderful aspects to it some opportunities you know some freedom to do the things that I wanted to do to really sort of reflect and to think and and even in some cases really to just slow down and take stock which you know when you're traveling with other people doesn't always happen because you're entertaining each other and you're trying to figure out what you both want to do that you're going to enjoy so that was the entry point for me that that sort of the business travel that began to show me what was possible. It seems like everything I read says that solo travel is on the rise. Do you you get that same sense? Oh, yeah, absolutely. There have been a number of studies. And what's interesting about it is it's not just folks who are single or people who don't have children. It's married couples, people with partners, people with kids. So it's it, they're showing in all groups because, you know, a lot of times now, you know, even in relationships, you can't always sync up your vacation or, you know, maybe the kids are off doing something or there's something special that you really want to do. You know, maybe there's a pottery making course somewhere or basket weaving, whatever it may be, that is really meaningful to you that you would like to pursue that doesn't necessarily interest everybody else in the household. So it it is absolutely on the rise, and we're seeing it across all sorts of groups and households. In your book, Alone Time, you write at length about eating alone. Why is that such a difficult experience for so many travelers? Yeah, it's interesting. It's something that a lot of people, when I when I talk, you know, casually with them, bring up. They say, you know, I really would like to go to this restaurant alone, but I feel self conscious, right? You know, you'll hear often from folks that they feel as if, um, you know, that people are judging them somehow or watching mm-hmm. them, and I think that 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 is a very common feeling, and I think it's something that's well worth trying to get over if you find yourself traveling alone for business or if you want to take a trip for pleasure because there are a lot of rewards there. Well, do you have any any tips or tricks 
for solo travelers who who need maybe a little nudge to go out to dinner on their own? Yeah, sure. I mean, for me personally, I re- I remember this. Like, I part of it was I started going out earlier. I didn't go at prime time, right? Where I felt that everybody who was going out was, you know, in a group or it was just super busy. So I'd go like a little earlier than the usual dinner time. But of course, there's the usual tricks like you can go to sit at the bar somewhere or you can go to uh, a restaurant that has communal seating or you can go to, uh, you know, cafe style seating where you're facing out on the sidewalk where the sidewalk, you know, the world becomes your companion in that situation. It's not just, you know, you're not missing someone sitting across from you. It's almost designed like that. Um, and there's also a great study that was done by this woman who I interviewed, uh, Bella DePaulo, and she's in California at the University of uh, California, Santa Barbara. And she did a great study, which I think is helpful for folks who are, you know, a little uncomfortable eating out on their own. She wanted to find out are they judged differently? You know, do people look at solo diners and think, oh, you're a loser? And her research turned out, she did this elaborate study with some colleagues where they went to, they took pictures of people in different groups eating in different scenarios and had asked people what they thought of them. And as it turned out, nobody judged the solo diners any differently than they judged people who were eating with, uh, you know, a partner. Uh, none, it didn't matter at all. So there is some research behind this that shows you may think everybody's judging you differently, <laughs> but they're not. <laughs> right. That's really, there was there was that Steve Martin movie, right? Didn't he, uh, he went, went to a restaurant yes. and asked for a table for one yes. and then the spotlight follows him throughout the restaurant to the table as if everybody was watching him, right? But I guess it's not really true. It's not really true, and in fact, there's but there's there's another study by a different group of folks called the and, and they named this the spotlight effect for that reason <laughs> for the Steve Martin movie that everybody thinks the spotlight is on them much more than it really is. But that's your that's our perception. People think that what they say, what they do, is scrutinized much more deeply than it really is, and that that's helpful to remember. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was also drawn to to another section of your book when you discuss something called window licking. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? (laughs) Sure. Window licking, uh, it's a translation of a French phrase, which is in English, we would refer to it as window shopping. But window licking sounds so much better. And I think it's actually... (laughs) It implies something more than just commerce, right? More than just shopping. It's about looking. It's about experiencing what you see when you're moving past storefronts in a city or you know anywhere you happen to be. So you know you're walking down the street in San Francisco and you're looking in these windows, and it's really about not thinking, oh, I want to buy that necessarily, but. Sometimes when you just see things in daily life, it sparks you know certain thoughts. Like you may begin to think, like, hmm. I, I, I had this experience once I looked in a window and they have these wonderful stamps, like all colors of stamps and things all from different countries. And I just thought it was so wonderful. And I just spent a little time looking or I walked by a store once and saw a whole bunch of wine corks. It was a you know liquor store that they had displayed in the window. But it was really creative and really interesting. And it's about like slowing down and appreciating life. And these are the sort of things you can do when you're not talking with someone else and when you're on your own. And so window licking to me is part of exploring a city, enjoying a city, like taking it in, you know, savoring the moment, basically. So it sounds like you are a window licker. I am a window licker. Yes, I do. <laughs> you know, I, I imagine that that one of the greatest pleasures of solo travel is being in total control of your agenda. You don't have to worry about, you know, any significant other or somebody else's timeline. It really is all about you. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the joys of that. And and it's, you know, some I've heard people say, well, isn't that selfish? It, it really is not when you think about the fact that how do you decide how you want to spend your life? Like, right, what's meaningful to you? What are the things that you do? What, what do you do for your work? What do you do for your hobbies? What do you do to help other people in the world? Like, a lot of times you need some space to figure these things out or, you know, and to, to discover these things about yourself. And sometimes that, that happens best when you're on your own. And when you're in another city, whether it's something in that city that you visually see, maybe it's something you hear when you're walking around. You know, when you're not talking to someone else, you ha- as you know, as you say, you have that freedom. You can hear, you hear church bells. You hear, you know, uh, I, I know in Los Angeles, I hear hummingbirds, you know, like or see hummingbirds, you know, in front of all sorts of door fronts and things. And it, it's just a wonderful way to... Uh, to think about what touches you and how you want to spend your time when you're not on vacation. And you, and you do write about serendipity, too. I mean, it certainly seems like solo travelers are more inclined to have those kind of spur-of-the-moment experiences, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, when you, I've, I've had that myself, you know, many times I, there's a, a wonderful uh, website called Book Crossing. And the people who are members are in the habit of, they refer to it as hiding books in the wild. So you sort <laughs> of register a book and you leave it somewhere for someone else to find. And I had wanted to find one of these for many years. And I happened to actually find one in Paris once just on, in a park. And I found it completely serendipitously because I got lost and I ended up in this park not, not because I had any intention of being there. And frankly, I was sort of annoyed to have been there because it wasn't where I was aiming for. But mm. then this wonderful thing happened, you know, and I found this book and it was just a it, it made my week. It was wonderful. And so I think, you know, allowing space for these moments, it makes the world it makes you feel a little bit like the universe is on your side. It sounds a little you know, woo-woo, but it, <laughs> if you open yourself up to this stuff, you, there, are, there are magical little moments in everyday life, and we often can be blind to these when we're, you know, not thinking and we're not, we're not moving slowly. I remember reading an article you wrote for The Times about walking solo in Los Angeles. Why is walking a good mode of transportation for solo travelers? Yeah, actually, uh, it was funny. I, was, I happened to be walking on Sunset Boulevard, uh, I, I should preface this by saying that I'm a New Yorker. I have a license. I'm not quite sure why they gave it to me, but they did. <laughs> and so I decided to just explore L.A. on foot everywhere. And I based myself in West Hollywood, obviously, because it's a pretty great – it, I mean, it's a great part of town, but it's also a great walking part of town. Um, and I was walking along Sunset Boulevard, and I happened to come across these, you know, sort of fanciful buildings, and it – Turned out it was Crossroads of the World, which was like the first pedestrian shopping mall, outdoor shopping mall in Los Angeles. And Alfred Hitchcock had spent time there. Um, it's where uh, the gangster Charlie Crawford was murdered. Now, I didn't know any of this at the time that I was there. It just sort of looked strange. And there were these sort you know, it was really, it was like beautiful, but it had a little bit of an abandoned theme park feel to it. And I just started walking around and I thought, this is so wonderful. And if I were in a car, there is no way that this would have happened because I would have just sped right by on my way to wherever I was going. And instead, I right. had that kind of, 
you know, wonderful moment. And that happened a lot in L.A. It happened when I walked by um, Jim Henson Studios also, where, uh, you know, I happened to see like, a you know, the the, uh, the Charlie Chaplin Kermit the Frog outside, which you can't quite see as well when you're sitting in a car. You can't see the top of the building. Um, but when you're walking, these are the sort of things you can see. Yeah. And then and also when you're on your own, uh, you're probably more likely to strike up conversations with locals, right? I mean, when you're not in your own kind of insular group. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I've met some some of the people that I actually am still in touch with now. I met I've met in my travels, you know, and that can happen even if you're not an outgoing person, even if you're not someone who strikes up conversations or if you don't sit at the bar. It happens on airplanes. It happens on trains. You know, it happened. It's happened with just the security staff at uh, museums and things like that. You know, also when you're alone, even I consider myself a shy person. And even the, those of us who are shy at some point or other are like, I need to talk to another human because, you know, it's <laughs> been a couple of days that I'm on my right. own here. What about safety, Stephanie? I mean, how, how do you strike a balance between the joys of solo adventures and concern for your well-being. A lot of this comes down to your intuition and sort of trusting your instincts. And some of us, you know, if you grow up in a big city and you're around a lot of strangers, it can sometimes, you know, that's a more finely honed thing. And so I think every single person is going to come at this a little differently. I think you need to operate within your comfort zone, right? So if this is the first time you're doing something and you're going to, and you're not used to big cities and you're going to one, you don't want to walk around not trusting everybody, but you also don't want to be so open that you, you know, allow like allow yourself to be put in a position that could be uncomfortable. So, you know, part of the thing is if you're staying, for instance, at a hotel, you go down and you talk to the front desk and you let them know what your situation is. Like, you know, I think you say, uh, hey, I'd like to. I'm going to go out tonight. I'd like to go out for dinner, and um, but I'm going by myself. And could, is, is this area? Could you recommend something? Or if you have a place you want to go, you tell them I'm thinking of going here, but I'm just a little concerned about doing it alone. What would you suggest? Is it okay to get on the subway at that time? Am I better off taking a car? You know that kind of thing. Um, and and you know, so so part of this is if you're not comfortable uh, operating in these situations. I think part of it is just getting advice from the folks who are around you, letting your friends, letting people you know, know where you are. And conversely, making sure that if you do meet people when you're out and going around, you don't really know. I wouldn't let people know where I'm staying, for instance, when I stay alone. I don't, you know, I keep that information to myself as much as we share everything nowadays. Right, right. Very, very good advice. Are there any tools or tips you'd like to share with listeners? Yeah, this one is uh, not necessarily something you have to have, but I love it. I think it's wonderful. It's very good for if you're a little bit type A. Uh, it's called Live Trekker. It's an app. And what it allows you to do, because I, I think what, what's wonderful about it is it allows you to be in the moment but also records everywhere you've walked. So let's say you're in, you know, you're in Berkeley and you're walking around and you're just, you know, you're exploring and you you really want to remember these little streets that you're going down because they're so lovely or the you found a wonderful restaurant over here. But you don't want to be taking notes because you want to be in the moment. You want to just be right. present. If you have this app running in the background, it draws a red line through Google Maps wherever you are going. And so later, you've got this wonderful map that you can see every place that you walked. And I just, I think it's brilliant. It's it's done by some folks out of, in based in France, but it works really well. And you don't need to be on the internet. You don't need Wi-Fi to do it. You just start it before you leave and let it go. And when you get home, you'll see everywhere you've been. 
Really great advice, Stephanie. Thanks so much for joining us on the California Now podcast. It was a pleasure. Podcast friend Pauline Fromer called Alone Time a deeply satisfying mix for the reader, part travel guide, part guide to living. I totally agree with that assessment. And you can find Alone Time on Amazon, at your local bookstore, and all over the place. And as always, you'll find more information and links to everything we discussed today, as well as the complete library of podcast episodes at visitcalifornia.com slash podcast. You're listening to the California Now podcast. I'm Satirius Johnson. My next guest, Farley Elliott, is the author of Los Angeles Street Food, a history from Tamaleros to Taco Trucks, an essential guide for anybody who wants to know where to find a great quick bite in downtown L.A., Highland Park, Mid-City, and beyond. Welcome back to the show, Farley. Thanks so much for having me. So, you know, in your book, you say that Los Angeles is the uncontested street food champion of the United States, and it isn't even a fair fight. Why is that? Well, you know, not only have we been doing it just about longer than anybody else, but the breadth of possibilities here is is really unrivaled. You know, we're the second largest uh, Mexican city in the world outside of Mexico City. And that doesn't even take into account, you know, Central Americans, folks locally who have started doing their own thing, living here for generations. And so it's a pretty easy, I think, argument to make once you start looking at how much is available in the city. Right. And that whole melting pot aspect of L.A., I'm sure, really helps create a really vibrant cultural mix. That's absolutely right. And you've got neighborhoods here that have been, you know, knowing and experienced street food for literally hundreds of years. And so the kids that are now coming up who want to work in the culinary industry, but maybe don't have the money to go to culinary school or don't have the recognition yet to own their own place, they're finding alternative ways, their own kind of modern street food to make a name for themselves and, and have guys like me come sniffing around hungry to eat. Now, I know your book is 176 pages long, but because this is a lightning round, we're going to ask you to to do the impossible. We want you to name your top five street food outposts in L.A., ranked from number five to number one, and we want you to do it quickly. So you think you can handle the pressure? Boy, oh boy, I'm sweating already, but I'll do my best. (laughs) All right, let's start with number five. What is it? Where is it? And what's on the menu? So I've got to give it up to All Flavor No Grease. It's a guy named Keith Garrett who used to operate a taco stand out of his driveway in Watts. He's since upgraded to a couple of food trucks, but he's doing this really unique thing, which is the fusion of Mexican flavors that everybody knows here in Los Angeles with a kind of modern, almost soul food tradition. So you can do, you know, ground turkey, but in a quesadilla, and he cooks it all up with a smile. And if you ever go to his Instagram, All Flavor No Grease, he's got an unbelievable energy that really draws people in. And and not only is the food delicious, but you couldn't be rooting for a better guy. Wow. Strong start. All right. Number four. Moose Craft Barbecue. Now, this is really interesting because they're doing Texas-style barbecue, but in East L.A., in their backyard. And so as a sidebar, you've got dishes like esquites, you know, corn off the cob with a little bit of, you know, mayonnaise, parquet, butter, some seasonings that are truly representative of the neighborhood. And then, you know, Andrew Munoz, the husband, is doing true low-and-slow Texas-style brisket to hundreds of people every weekend. Okay, now you're making me hungry. (laughs) I'm going to have to try that. Number three. What's your number three? Uh, I've got a real soft spot for Marisco Salisco, which is a super regionally specific style of seafood crunchy taco. So they take shrimp and they chop it up, marinate it overnight, and then they stuff it into a corn tortilla, fry the whole thing on the outside. So you get these plump, juicy shrimp tacos, a little kind of aguachile, spicy sauce over top, some slices of avocado, just go to town right on the sidewalk for just a couple of bucks. Amazing. Okay. Who lands second on your list? 
Uh, I, I really, really have been loving the food lately at the Guatemalan Street Fair that happens near MacArthur Park every week. You know, this is a representation of the Central American side of what Los Angeles does. And in that Westlake neighborhood, it's almost all Central American. So you've got people that are doing ad hoc cooking out of, you know, shopping carts, making things at home, bringing them down, whether it's, you know, a big sope style, you know, tortillas, tacos. We've got grilled meats. It, it's all just a big flavor bonanza that happens a, a couple weeks weeknights uh, right in the heart of, of what now is the middle of Los Angeles. Wow, sounds delicious. All right, now we're at the number one, your number one street food option in Los Angeles. What is it? I just don't think you can go wrong with Kogi Barbecue. You know, Roy Choi really did reinvent the food truck game for not only L.A., but the rest of the world. This is a taco truck that I've got no shame in saying I had at my wedding. You know, the the (laughs) marriage of Korean barbecue flavors, tortillas, is purely Angelino. And I think if you're only going to eat at one place in Los Angeles, it's the best representation of what we are as a city. Wow. So Roy Choi really lives up to his reputation. Thanks so much for joining us, Farley. Your suggestions just provided the inspiration for my next trip to L.A. Well, thanks for having me. And check out the book anytime. There's a lot more inside. Absolutely. Farley Elliott has been a full-time food editor for the last seven years. First, L.A. Weekly, Serious Eats, and KCET. And now with Eater, Westways, and others. You can order a copy of his book about Los Angeles street food at Amazon. And you can find more info on all the places we discussed today at visitcalifornia.com slash podcast. You probably know that California is far and away the leading producer of wine in the United States, but did you know that 99% of U.S. olive oil is produced in California? And that last fall's harvest generated 4 million gallons of the good stuff? Well, our next guest is Tom Curry, co-owner of the Temecula Olive Oil Company. And today, he's going to talk to us about tasting extra virgin olive oil, the growth of olive tourism, and why he gave up a 20-year career in the wine industry to work in the Grove. Welcome to the California Now podcast, Tom. Thank you very much, Saturius. So, so is that true? Did you actually leave the glamour of the wine industry to focus on olive oil? <laughs> Well, I'd like to look at it as I left the wine industry for the glamour of the olive oil industry. (laughs) Well, it sounds fascinating. Tell us about that. What's your origin story? I mean, how how did Temecula Olive Oil Company get started? Both my wife and I were in the uh, wine industry for a long time. She still is in the wine industry. And we just saw the opportunities with olive oil, just like the wine industry was back in the 60s and 70s. People were starting to discover not only new and different flavors in olive oil, but you know new, that California really had the ability with it, our just uh, incredible climate and great population to produce some of the best uh, olive oil in the world, just like we were producing some of the best wine in the world. And we wanted to jump on that bandwagon and we took the leap and, and did it. It was uh, quite a journey. Is it safe to say that the olive oil industry is, today is kind of like what the wine industry in California was maybe like 20 years ago or something? Absolutely. Um, we started our business in 2001. And at that time, California represented less than 1% of all the consumption in the United States. And I was on the California Olive Oil Council taste panel, and we could taste all the olive oils being made in California in you know, a couple meetings. And now, you know, fast forward a little bit, uh, and we're well over 5% of consumption. Still, there's a lot to go, but uh, now the taste panel is busy almost year-round tasting just fantastic California olive oil. So we're seeing exactly what we predicted when we started this business, 
that people are discovering California olive oil, understanding the quality and the just incredible flavor of, that we produce here in this sunny state. The statistics I cited earlier about the size of the California olive oil industry really surprised me. I mean, four million gallons. I mean, <laughs> that makes a lot of salad dressing. What is it about California and olives that make such a great fit? We have the perfect climate for it, uh, the right mixture of, a, of not too hot temperatures, not too cold, very, very consistent with uh, little rainfall in the summertime, most of our rainfall coming in the, in the fall and the winter. It's just the ideal climate. When, when the missions were being built and the Franciscans realized the climate that they had, they quickly brought all these plants from, from Spain that reminded them of home, and they all flourished here, whether it was the olives, the grapes, the citrus, the almonds. And it seems like they've all done pretty well here in California. Generally speaking, how does California olive oil stack up against Italian or Spanish or Greek olive oil? Is it, is it, is it of similar quality? Is there a perception that one is better than the other? Well, it depends on whose perception that is, I guess. If you're talking <laughs> to an Italian, there, <laughs> there's no comparison. It's funny, <laughs> just like with the wine industry. But what's even more interesting is there seems to be more divisiveness and more passion about olive oil than there is with wine. When you talk with someone from Spain, I mean, they'll, they'll go to blows over their olive oil versus anyone else's. And the same with the Greeks and the Italians. Everywhere that they're growing olive oil, it's absolutely the best. But what I argue, having traveled all around the world and visited and worked in different places where they're growing olive oil and making olive oil, by far, California not only has the best climate, we're more consistent than any Mediterranean climate because the Pacific Ocean just offers a better buffer than the, the Mediterranean but we also have the technology and we're not tied down to tradition. So we can try new things that they don't possibly try in Europe. So I think in the small time that this renaissance has taken place, we, we're not only matching but surpassing in many ways the, uh, the old world. What kind of new things are, you, are, are people able to do in California with olive oil? If you just start with uh, planting techniques, um, irrigation techniques that have been brought over from the wine industry and some of the other agricultural industries that we've perfected here in California, but mixing different varieties. Whereas in most parts of the Mediterranean, they have their traditional varieties that they grow traditionally. Um, pruning techniques, uh, the olive oil center at UC Davis has just been uh, excellent in their research as well as at uh, Fresno State. So we're getting all that input along with um, just growers that aren't tied down to anything and are willing to try anything and experiment. And it's really paying off because California olive oil is just amazing. What do you say to people who only use, say, Italian olive oil, if, you know, or, you know, Greek olive oil. What do you say to those people as far as kind of like maybe widening their horizons to try something different? Well, we're really lucky because with our company, we have tasting rooms all over Southern California. So the best way to, to have that discussion is put some in their mouth. Um, because once they taste it, it's, it's a no-brainer. They love it. Tasting is believing. And <laughs> uh, especially with what we have available now, it, any, any of the olive oils made in California, when you put a little bit in your mouth, you're going to see the difference and it'll be convincing. Interesting. All right. So let's, let's say I walk into your tasting room in the Old Town section of Temecula, and I want to embark on my first ever olive oil tasting experience, what happens next? What do I do? 
Well, we absolutely love getting extra virgins in the tasting room. So um, the first thing we're going to do is hand you a just a little taste of olive oil with no bread. And we usually get a sideways look like what I'm just going to taste oil and put this in my mouth. <laughs> and we're going to go absolutely. And with a little reticence, they'll put it up to their lips and we'll encourage them just to, to take a little sip and let it rest on their tongue. Because with olive oil, it's a little different than tasting wine. Wine has alcohol, which will volatilize a lot of the aromas and make them readily available to us. You have to work a little harder with olive oil. So we let it warm up out in our tongue and then breathe back through your nose to get that little retronasal. That's where you get a lot of the fruity aromas and, uh, from the olive oil. And then you swallow it. And then you get the, the finish, which should have a little bit of bitterness and a touch of what we call in the taste panel pungency. It's a little pepperiness in the back of your throat that comes from the polyphenols that are present in fresh olive oil. And once people experience this, it, you can just see a glow come over them, their eyes light up, and it's like something they've never done before. And pretty soon they can't get enough. They're tasting this and that. We're mixing vinegars with it, and they're hooked. Yeah, it sounds like a very sensual experience. I mean, you have the just like wine tasting, you have the aroma, you have the taste, you have uh, kind of different flavors coming forward in the beginning of the taste as opposed to the finish. Um, it, it sounds like a, a really wonderful uh, way to experience different kinds of olive oils. It really is. And once you know that this olive oil tastes good on its own with no bread, no nothing, just your, your imagination runs wild of how good it's going to make some other foods taste, whether it's just dipping bread in it or drizzling over your salad or grilled vegetables. It just... It's an experience I, I like to equate to anyone that's grown up uh, just uh, with frozen orange juice like I did. And you drink for frozen orange juice, it tastes great. It's orange juice. And <laughs> once you taste fresh squeezed orange juice, it's like an epiphany and everything changes. You can't go back to frozen. And that's usually what I say to people that are used to the Spanish or, or Italian olive oils that they purchase here in the United States. Just try it. You'll see the difference right away. Why does freshness matter with olive oil? That's the key to all of olive oil. <laughs> Can I say that? <laughs> all of olive oil? Um, because um, olive oil is fruit juice. And all we're doing is picking that fruit. Olives are a droop fruit related to cherries. And we're picking that fruit and as quickly as possible, squeezing the juice out of it. It's just that olive oils are amazing because we can separate the oil and the water and now we have this fresh essence of the, the sun, really, in a bottle that's going to last for a good two years if it's stored properly. And it, it's going to taste nice and fresh. It should taste like fruit juice. The longer it sits, the less fresh it is. So you, it is fruit juice. Think about it that way. And if you think about that concept, you'll, you'll want to get the freshest available. So, so if I'm in your facility and I, I look around, who else is there? Is it bridal parties, millennials with kids? tourists from China. Who's tasting olive oil these days? Well, that's the beauty of it, too, is, you know, coming from the wine industry where, you know, it, there's a limited selection because you have to be over 18 or 21, excuse me, to, uh, um, to go into the tasting rooms. Uh, with, with our olive oil, not only is it a wide variety of people because everyone loves olive oil, that there's also a wide variety of ages. There's nothing better with a family that comes in and they have their 10-year-old who tastes some of our olive oil and 
thinks it's absolutely delicious. And we get an email a couple of weeks later saying that my son never loved salad until we started putting your olive oil in it. And now he <laughs> can't get enough. That's a great story. I'm sure a few parents out there are taking notes. Uh, let's look across the entire state for a second. Where else would you send us for a great olive oil tasting experience? You can you know, craft it as a, as a road trip if you like. If we're traveling up from Southern California, you know, I would say the first stop is going to be in, in Paso, uh, Paso Robles, and Willow Creek is always a nice, uh, nice olive oil producer making fine olive oils, um, just classic California, clean, always well-made. Uh, you can continue to travel up the coast um, and go a little inland, I think, as a contrast, if you stop in Lodi, which has some great wines, by the way, I love some of the old vine Lodi wines, and uh, take a little trip to the um, Cordo Olive Oil Company. So you'll see with Willow Creek, a, a classic small boutique producer, and then you can go to the this Cordo, who is the second largest producer of olive oil in California, and just see the contrast. They're both making wonderful olive oils, just on a different scale and different style. So you get a good contrast. And then traveling up to Sonoma, um, the Olive Press, who has been around for a long time, they're at the Jacuzzi Winery, and they have a fantastic facility that has a gorgeous tasting room, and you can see the mill right there. So that's a wonderful wine country experience as well. What about uh, one that's in a surprising location, somewhere you wouldn't necessarily expect to find world-class olive oil? Well, I think if you you travel um, further up past Sacramento, up into um, uh, the Sacramento Valley, there's there's no place better than to stop in, say, in Corning, which is the olive capital of the world. There's a few really good producers in that area. The Corning Olive Oil Company is up there. Has been always the hub of uh, California olives. Um, anyone that has spent any time uh, in their childhood or anything driving up uh, Northern California might remember the olive pit right off the uh, the highway. And there's olive trees all around there. It's kind of a forgotten area as far as uh, wine and those kind of things. But for olive oil, it's really the traditional hub of of olives in California. Thanks for the recommendations, Tom, and, and thanks for bringing your insights to the California Now podcast. Well, it's been my pleasure. It's, it's my passion, and, and I love olive oil, and I love sharing everything about it, and thank you for the opportunity. Master taster Tom Curry is the co-owner of Temecula Olive Oil Company, which has five tasting rooms, five, that's a lot, in Southern California, including facilities in San Diego County and Orange County. You'll find links to everything we discussed today at our website, visitcalifornia.com slash podcast. Thank you for listening to California Now. This podcast is produced by Visit California. I'm your host, Satirius Johnson. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Please subscribe. We covered a lot of territory today on the podcast, discussing the merits of solo travel, sampling the best street food in L.A., and mapping out some of the most compelling olive oil tasting experiences in Temecula, Paso Robles, Lodi, and Corning. To explore the depth and breadth of California's many travel opportunities, I suggest you get your hands on a free copy of the California's Visitor's Guide, a 200-page magazine that highlights attractions in every corner of the state. Get your copy today by heading to visitcalifornia.com slash cvg.